You're listening to a message from Third Church in Richmond, Virginia, where we believe we are called together for the renewal of all things through Jesus Christ. To learn more about Third or how you can get involved with our community, please check out our website, thirdrva.org. That's T-H-I-R-D-R-V-A dot org. Thanks for listening. Amen. You can be seated. Morning, everybody. My name is Elizabeth Hayes. I'm the director of parish ministry here at Third, and I'm glad to be with you this morning. We are continuing our sermon series that we're in this summer called Taste and See. And in this series, we are looking at a series of stories about feasts feasts and food (laughs) Um, throughout the entire Bible from beginning to end. And we're finding in these stories that God is giving us an invitation to be nourished by him and to experience him as the one who wants to nourish us. You know, the best meals, they're not just sustenance. They're not just fuel for our body. They are also delightful. We also enjoy them. And that's part of the invitation that we're seeing here. These stories show us that God wants us to experience and to enjoy him not just to know about him with our minds, but to enjoy him and experience him as well. So today we're going to look at a really interesting story from the book of 1 Kings, 1 Kings chapter 17, if you'd like to turn there in your Bible, um, about the prophet Elijah. And we, I'm going to pray first, and then we're going to listen to Gretchen Malik, who's going to read for us. So let's pray. Lord, we pray that you would open our hearts and our minds by the power of your Holy Spirit, As these scriptures are read and your word is proclaimed, we might hear with joy what it is you have to say to us today. Amen. 1 Kings chapter 17, verses 1 through 16. Now Elijah the Tishbite from Tishbe in Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, whom I serve, There will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah. Leave here, turn eastward, and hide in the Kareth Ravine, east of the Jordan. You will drink from the brook, and I have directed the ravens to supply you with food there. So he did what the Lord had told him. He went to the Kareth Ravine, east of the Jordan, and stayed there. The ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. Some time later, the brook dried up because there had been no rain in the land. Then the word of the Lord came to him, go at once to Zarephath in the region of Sidon and stay there. I have directed a widow there to supply you with food. So he went to Zarephath. When he came to the town gate, A widow was there gathering sticks. He called to her and asked, Would you bring me a little water in a jar so I may have a drink? As she was going to get it, he called, And bring me, please, a piece of bread. As surely as the Lord your God lives, she replied, I don't have any bread, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little olive oil in a jug. I am gathering a few sticks to take home and make a meal for myself and my son, that we may eat it and die. Elijah said to her, don't be afraid. Go home and do as you have said. But first, 
Make a small loaf of bread for me from what you have and bring it to me, and then make something for yourself and your son. For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says, The jar of flour will not be used up, and the jug of oil will not run dry until the day the Lord sends rain on the land. She went away and did as Elijah had told her. So there was food every day for Elijah and for the woman and her family. For the jar of flour was not used up, and the jug of oil did not run dry, in keeping with the word of the Lord spoken by Elijah. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So I want to know who in this room loves to go camping. There are some halfway raised hands in here. (laughs) So people who actually love to go camping, what is your favorite thing to cook when you're camping? Yell it out. I want to hear. Bacon, s'mores, steak. Somebody said steak. (laughs) Um, S'mores. Yeah, I love s'mores too. Hot tops. Camp food is such good food, isn't it? I remember when I was in elementary school, I was at a, um, a summer camp, and we, we went on an overnight, and they cooked us this meal that they called campfire stew. And I thought that this was just like the best thing I had ever put in my mouth. And I remember talking about how good campfire stew was for like years after And then later, when I was older, I went back and I was a a counselor at this camp, and I learned that campfire stew is Chef Boyardee heated up over a campfire served on a slice of Wonder Bread. (laughs) So there's absolutely nothing special about campfire stew, but you guys get it, right? There's something about being in the woods and being tired and with no other option that means that just anything you put in your mouth at a campfire is amazing, right? Isn't that how it is? Well, today we are, or in this series, I'm sorry, we've been exploring the themes of feasts and meals throughout the Bible. But today, our story takes place in a time of famine, a time when there is no food to be found. So the books of First and Second Kings were written to the Israelites while they were in exile. The temple had been destroyed, they had been removed from the promised land, and the Israel as a kingdom had ceased to exist. And so the Israelites were looking back at their long history and they were thinking, what did all of that mean? Is God still even in control? Does he care anymore? And so these, these books were written to retell the story of Israel in answer to those questions. Now, you might not have experienced a literal famine or a literal exile, but I bet you've asked those same questions before. Maybe it was a health crisis or a lost job or a crumbling relationship or crippling anxiety. These things, they make us feel like our sense of understanding has been pulled out from under us, like a rug being pulled out from under us, right? And, and they make us wonder, does God still care? Well, today we're going to look at 
just one episode of this history in the books of First and Second Kings, the history of Israel and Judah. And we're going to see that as in all of the stories that are told in the books of First and Second Kings, that God was and is still in control, that he still cares for his people. And we're going to see that there is nothing too big or too small, too near or too far for God's care. So our passage today begins with uh, introducing Elijah for the first time. Now, Elijah is one of the most important Old Testament prophets. He's one of the most important figures in all of biblical history, but he's someone whose story we're not as familiar with, like some of the other characters, uh, biblical characters like Moses, right? So what exactly is going on here? Well, it's eight centuries before the life of Christ, And the kingdom of Israel was split in two. You had Israel in the north and Judah in the south. And the book of 1 Kings up until this point had told the story of a string of bad kings after bad kings in both the north and the south. Just bad king after bad king. But the worst king of all the bad kings was King Ahab. And what made King Ahab so bad is that he married a Gentile woman named Jezebel, who was a princess from the kingdom of Sidon. And Jezebel, along with Ahab, went on a systematic campaign to wipe out the worship of Yahweh in the land of Israel. So they destroyed the prophets of Yahweh. They brought in uh, uh, prophets of the foreign, the Canaanite god Baal, and they put these prophets on the government's payroll. Um, And, you know, Israel had always fought the temptation to worship idols, right? This was a huge part of their history. But never before had the king of Israel bankrolled idol worship, while at the same time systematically trying to destroy the worship of Yahweh, the god of Israel. So things had gotten to a really, really bad place in Israel. And Elijah was the only prophet of Yahweh who remained. He was the last stand. Can you imagine what that might have felt like for him? Sounds kind of intimidating. So he, in the middle of this really, really bad situation, when it seemed like nothing was going according to plan, like the rug had been yanked out from under them, God uses Elijah, to give Israel a wake-up call. Israel had been hitting the snooze button a few too many times, and it was like dad came in the room to open up the blinds and yank off the sheets and actually get Elijah, I mean, get Israel up out of bed. Anybody know what that's like? So Elijah delivers this word of the Lord to King Ahab in verse 1, announcing that there will be drought in the land, that there won't be any rain until Elijah says there will be rain. Now, why does God choose to send a drought of all things? He could have, like, turned the river into blood like he's done in the past or send a plague of frogs. Why a drought? Here's the thing. Baal, who's the god who Jezebel and Ahab are trying to promote, Baal was a nature god. So the belief was that Baal was the one who sent rain to make the crops grow and to produce a harvest. And so if you worshipped Baal, if you sacrificed to him, if you did his bidding, he would send rain for the crops. So when Elijah announces that Yahweh is going to bring a drought and that Yahweh's prophet Elijah was the only person who could end it, this is a direct confrontation 
against Baal's power, right? What Elijah is saying through his prophetic word here and through his actions as well is that there is no other God who controls life and death besides Yahweh. The drought showed that no matter how much you sacrifice to Baal, no matter how much you do Baal's bidding, Yahweh is more powerful. Yahweh is the Lord of the heavens and the earth, not Baal. So this divinely inspired drought sets the stage for the events of our reading today. And in the midst of this dramatic display of God's control over heaven and earth, over life and death, we also find three dramatic and miraculous examples of God's provision, his care for his people. And we're going to talk about each of these three miracles and what they show us about God's care for us. So let's start with the first one. Elijah has made this big announcement that things are about to get really, really bad and that he's the only one who can make it stop. What do you imagine? What type of emotion do you imagine that welled up in King Ahab's heart? Like hatred, right? (laughs) And so Elijah has just put a target on his back. He is in a really vulnerable place here. Ahab and Jezebel would have been so mad that they would have done just about anything to kill Elijah and end this drought. So that is when God speaks to Elijah and he instructs him where to find refuge. The surprising thing is that what he tells him is to run, what God tells him is to run east of the Jordan. What we know about that area geographically is that it is a really desolate and inhospitable desert. It's a wilderness. It is not a place where a person could uh, sustain life on their own. And so it's really surprising that it's into this wilderness that God sends Elijah to find refuge. And when Elijah arrives in this desolate place, God demonstrates again that all of nature is under his control. All of nature does God's bidding. But this time, God shows Elijah that it's not, that he doesn't just have control over the big, epical, history-making events like a drought, but he also has control over things as small as a raven. There's a real intimacy and tenderness to God's care here, I think. God provides an abundant provision for Elijah while he's in the wilderness, while he's in his most dire time of need, in the place where he's most likely to be lost or forgotten. And here in the wilderness, even before God delivers Elijah out of the wilderness, God makes a feast for Elijah there. God is with his people in wilderness places. I wonder if you've ever found yourself in a wilderness place, a place or a season where maybe you felt desolate or vulnerable, maybe persecuted or just in need, totally unable to provide for your own needs. In my life, um, seasons of depression and anxiety have been my East of the Jordan moments, my wilderness experiences. And In those desolate seasons, though, even before God has delivered me out of them, while I've still been in them, I've been able to see these moments where God has shown me his tender care. I think of things like um, 
a flower opening up in my garden and blooming, or a cardinal perching, perching on the window outside of my wherever I'm sitting, um, or a, an unexpected laugh with a friend. These are tiny bits of sustenance, tiny morsels like those that the ravens brought that allowed me to experience God's care for me more than just knowing about it in my head. This is who God is. Our God is with his people in wilderness places. He cares for us even in the places where we're most likely to be lost or forgotten. He invites us to feast at the table God has set for us in the wilderness, even before he's delivered us from the wilderness, and to notice and to experience his tenderness and his care, even in the dark and desolate places of our life. So in this first miracle, we see that God cares for his people in big ways as well as in small and sometimes unseen ways. In the second miraculous provision, In this story, it shows us a different perspective on God's care, a different aspect of God's care. After a while, the brook where where Elijah had been sent eventually did dry up, and so he needed to find somewhere else to find refuge. And so God speaks to him yet again with new instructions. The first time, the instructions were surprising because he told him to find refuge in this really desolate wilderness. But the second time... God's instructions are even more surprising. He tells Elijah to go to Zarephath, which is in Sidon. Now, Sidon is Phoenicia. It's the heart of Baal worship. And you might also remember that Sidon is also the area that Jezebel's father controls. So God is sending Elijah right into the lion's den, right into the heart of enemy territory. And there, God tells him a widow, a Gentile widow at that, would give him what he needed to survive. In Luke 4, Jesus refers to this story, and he points out that God could have used any widow in Israel to deliver Elijah from hunger, but he chooses to use a Gentile widow, one from Sidon of all places. And Jesus is making this connection here. He's showing us that just like Elijah was rejected by Israel, run out of Israel, only to be accepted in Zarephath, Jesus was rejected by the insiders and accepted by the outsiders. And when Jesus points this out, when he brings up this story, if, if you are looking in your Bible, then you'll see that it was so offensive to the religious leaders with whom he was talking that they immediately ran him to the edge of a cliff and tried to, to throw him over. So they, they were so offended by this that they tried to kill him. This story, it confused them, it upset them, it threatened them, it offended them. And Elijah would have honestly been just as shocked by this instruction that God gave him. Because wasn't Elijah supposed to be protecting Israel from the impurity of these foreign gods? Wasn't he supposed to be uh, keeping them away from these foreign gods that are found in Sidon. But God sends Elijah to a dirt poor, racially other, unbelieving, idol-worshiping woman of all people. And he says to Elijah, enter her home, sit at her table, be at her mercy. This is how I'm going to deliver you, and I won't have it any other way. 
why would God do this? So interesting, isn't it? Why in the world would God choose to save his only remaining prophet through this kind of person, in this kind of way? Well, it's because God is a God of outsiders. God goes out of his way to go to outsiders. God's a God of outsiders because he's a God of grace. The true God offers his salvation, his deliverance, his care for us, regardless of merit, regardless of pedigree, regardless of gender, regardless of class. And for that reason, friends, the deliverance of God, the care that he shows to us, it's always going to come in unexpected ways. So the American church and American Christians like me and you have been preoccupied for about 50 years with protecting the influence of Jesus in the public square. And in many cases, the way that we've done that is by removing ourselves from places where we feel that the influence of secularism is really strong. I think that this story is so interesting because Elijah's story tells us that it is good and right to stand up for the righteousness of God especially in places where it's threatened. And Ahaz's story in particular also tells us that the influences with which we surround ourselves have an enormous impact on us. And so to some degree, I think in many ways, these have been good and right impulses. But Elijah's story, and especially this second miracle, that also tells us that we cannot predict how God will deliver us. Sometimes God invites us into the heart of Sidon to receive his deliverance and his care. Friends, I think that there is a second invitation for us here to feast at the widow's table. Think for a second, who is the widow in your life or in your world? Who is the kind of person or maybe a specific person who, about whom you might think, why in the world would God work with a person like that? Or you might think, uh, there is no way that God could bring anything good into my life because of that person. Who is the widow in your life? Like Elijah and like these religious leaders that Jesus was speaking with, we oftentimes think that we know how God will, God's deliverance will come to us. But God's deliverance always comes in unexpected ways. So I wonder, could God be inviting you to put yourself in a position to be blessed by those on the outside, to be blessed by the widow in your world, to actually eat at their table? The great irony of this story is that the most faithful person here is this foreign widow, she displayed an unimaginably sacrificial obedience to a foreign god, to Yahweh, the god of Elijah. And her courageous obedience is lifted up here as the paradigm of faith in this story. And through her faith in a god that she didn't even yet know, not only is Elijah saved from starvation, so are she and her son and actually her entire household they're protected from starvation for the entire remainder of the drought because of her faith. And even more sounding, after our reading, if you go on to the end of chapter 17, you'll see that 
through Elijah, God actually delivers her son from death, raises her son from the dead. So we see that God cares not only for his inside man, for Elijah, but also for the entire, this entire Gentile household and the heart of Sidon and the heart of Baal worship. God's deliverance comes in really unexpected ways. So in this first miracle, we saw that God cares for the big and the small. And in the second miracle, we see that God cares for the insiders as well as the outsiders. And there's an invitation to us here to feast at the widow's table. Now let's look at the third miracle in this story, which shows that God cares for those near and far. We've seen that God was demonstrating through Elijah and through this drought that there is only one God who controls life and death, that God is more powerful than Baal. And ultimately, God proves that he is the most powerful when he ends the drought. This is in chapter 18. So this is after our reading today, but I think it's a really important part of the story. So I'm going to tell you a little bit about what happens. You can flip there if you want. So for the third time, God comes to Elijah with surprising instructions, and he says to him, go back to Ahab, that guy who wants to kill you. And so Elijah goes back to Ahab, and then eventually um, Elijah, who's the only remaining prophet of Israel, of Yahweh, he challenges these 450 prophets of Baal to a battle on Mount Carmel. Uh, And Elijah throws down the gauntlet. He says, all right, Do whatever you can to call on your God, and I'll call on mine, and we'll see who shows up. And so the prophets of Baal, they they perform their sacrifices perfectly, they dance around the altar, and then they call on Baal, and they wait, and nothing happens. And then they do it a second time, and they call on Baal, and they wait, and nothing happens. And then they do it a third time, and nothing happens. And then this lone prophet of Yahweh, Elijah, he calls Yahweh's name and the altar lights on fire. Yahweh is on the scene. And then someone in the crowd felt something and they said, was that a raindrop? And then somebody else felt a drop. And then the heavens just opened up and the rain came down. Finally, the drought had ended. The rains came, the crops started to grow again, and eventually the whole region feasted. Do you see that? Not only Israel got fed at the end of this story, the whole region was blessed. Just as God is demonstrating that he is the one true God, he's also demonstrating what kind of God he is here. He's a God who brings help and restoration, and his care, not only to his people, but ultimately to the whole earth. God's care in the story, it's like a stone dropped in a smooth lake, like this picture you see here, with ripples of care extending farther and farther out. So first he cares for his man, Elijah, and then he cares for this Gentile widow and her entire household in Sidon, and then he cares for the entire region, I think that there's a final invitation to us here in this third miracle. What might it mean for us to extend the feast, to extend the blessing of the harvest to all people, Christians and non-Christians, those near and those far, 
so that everyone can taste and see God's care, the goodness of God. This is why I love that we support mission partners who run orphanages and after-school programs and hospitals and refugee centers here in Richmond and all over the world. And our mission partners do this not only so that they can have the opportunity to evangelize, as vital as that is, as essential as that is, they also do it to share the abundance of our good God, to invite the whole world to taste and see the care of the one true God. So friends, we've seen that God cares for us in big moments and in small moments. Let's receive his invitation to feast at the wilderness table, to notice and receive his care for us in desolate places. We've also seen that God cares for the insider as well as the outsider. Let's receive his invitation to the widow's table to allow him to surprise us with his surprising and unexpected care for us. And finally, we've seen that God extends his care over the whole world. Let's receive his invitation to extend the feast, to share his abundance with those near and far so that everyone might taste and see who he is. I mentioned earlier that Jesus quoted this story about Elijah and It's interesting, Elijah was actually a really important figure for Jesus. Jesus saw himself and his ministry as following in Elijah's footsteps in a lot of ways. And so there's this interesting connection. You see, through Elijah, God put Israel through the crucible of drought in order to demonstrate that true deliverance, true care, could only come from the one true God. But on the cross, Jesus followed in Elijah's footsteps by giving Israel a whole different kind of wake-up call. On the cross, instead of putting Israel through the crucible, Jesus went himself through the crucible of death and condemnation. On the cross, God said, look at me. He said, look at who I am. Is there any other God who can care for you the way I do? This is the kind of God that we serve, friends. A God who cares for us in the most intimate moments of desperation. A God who cares for those whom the church and the society might reject or neglect. A God who extends his care beyond just individual lives and over the whole earth. A God who cares by giving us his very life. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're grateful for the care that you have shown us. And we ask that as we consider these invitations that you're offering us, invitation to notice and receive your care while we're in the wilderness, the invitation to receive your unexpected blessing at the widow's table, and your invitation to extend the abundance of your care and your provision for us to the whole world. We ask that you'd be with us, God, that you would guide us and direct us and open our eyes to the opportunities to respond to these invitations that you're presenting us with. And we thank you, God, that ultimately you have shown us the greatest care through the death of your son, Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.